Like, yes, there were tragedies in my life that have fully shaped who I am today. But one, here's how God has brought me through those things, even when I didn't think he could. And so how can you doubt that he can do the same thing for you in your life? But also in that, you have the ability to be a beacon and a light for other people that are going through the same difficult days that you are at one point in time. And you can use that to make a, an eternal impact on heaven. And that's a powerful thing, man. Welcome back to another episode of the No More Zero Days podcast. Our guest today is none other than one of my friends I've known for the last seven years, Will Gibson. Will is an industrial engineer for a multinational corporation residing in Atlanta, Georgia. This has been one of the most impactful episodes I've ever recorded, hence why it's taking the number one spot for the longest episode recorded so far. Today we talk about his amazing testimony of overcoming losing both of his parents at a young age, life as a 20-something in the year 2020, highs and lows of dating culture right now, and most importantly, Auburn football. Ladies, make sure you stick around because we really hone in on the dating conversation around minute 53. So don't bail early. You're going to miss the good stuff. (laughs) But without further ado, episode 32 begins now. So I know when this episode is going to come out, it's actually going to be after Thanksgiving, but we are recording here in Nashville just a few days before Thanksgiving. And I never want anyone to think that I'm trying to benefit from someone else's downfall or struggles on this podcast, which is why I never have and never will have sponsors on the show. And purely so that way, when people like you that are amazing that I know and then I ask on, and I say, hey, would you come on the show and sh- share your story or share your testimony or share what's going on in your life? It's so that everyone knows it's that I genuinely want to learn from you. And I genuinely believe that what you have to share is impactful. And so I know this year and probably... You know, every holiday season is really hard for you um, because of the loss of your parents. And I don't want to just skip over that and say, hey, Will, tell us the story about what you had to go through as a kid. And and that's all that's said because I know it's it's a heavy one. And I want to honor you in that. And I just am so proud of you for your willingness to come on and share. And I know I personally am looking forward to learning um, from you and what God's been teaching you. So, I guess I'll just straight up ask you um, in a very general way and let you take it from here to start off the episode of tell me about your story um, as a kid and having to go through losing your parents. Yeah. So growing up, I went to a private Christian school from pre-K through graduation. I came from a great family situation. Both my parents were extremely supportive, extremely loving. In my mind growing up, I had the American dream as far as a household went. I I was in a private Christian school where I was learning about faith every day, had great friends. And I remember at a very young age coming to a personal relationship with the Lord and thinking, God, I need something to happen in my life that allows people the ability to listen to my story. Because right now I feel that if I went and shared my testimony, and this was at nine, 10 years old, I was still really young. I was thinking nobody is going to relate to this story because there's no hardship. There's no trial. There's no tribulation in this. People are going to hear my story and say, you've already got everything you would need. And there's been no difference in your life between when you knew Jesus and where you are now. So how can you say that that changed your life in any kind of positive way? So it wasn't until my parents had their accident in 2006, where my mom passed away, put my dad in the hospital in the ICU for about three months. We weren't quite sure that he was going to make it, that I really felt a sense of isolation to an extent where my faith was the only thing that I had left. And I truly felt that that was the first time I realized the significance of my faith because I didn't see what it was until it was the only thing that I had left. The entire foundation of my life had been rocked 
in the span of a 10 second phone call. And I didn't know if my dad was going to make it during that time either. And so I really had to realize the significance of what my faith meant to me. And through that, and then through my father later committing suicide in my senior high school, there were a lot of points along that path where I didn't necessarily know whether the Lord was working or what he was doing, but in hindsight, I could see that he was there every step of the way. And so I guess circling back to your question, the holidays are always a, a very challenging time full of mixed emotions because I still have very loving and supportive people in my life here that I'm happy to come back to. I'm fortunate to have been raised in a school where everybody knew everybody and everybody knew everybody's parents and we're all still very close today. So they've been supportive truly every step of the way. And through that, I've learned that family goes beyond just your blood relatives. There can be people that are your friends or family friends that can truly become family. And I'm very thankful the Lord has put those people in my life, but it's hard because as time has passed, it's been 15 years almost since I lost my mom. And it's been, I guess, eight years at this point since I've lost my dad. The day-to-day isn't as painful as it was, but holidays are hard. And little things like pulling up to the exit that I used to get off of when I came home or seeing something that reminds me of one of the two of them hurts just as bad now as it did in those moments when I found out that I lost them. And I think that is something for people that haven't been through an experience like that don't necessarily understand because they say that time heals all wounds. But that's only true to an extent. It's not a constant pain that's sharp. But the sharp pain when it occurs is just as difficult as it ever was. I can think of moments in my life the last few years where something has happened where I've been like, man, it would have been so great if my mom or my dad would have been here because they would have loved this moment or this major milestone in my life. And so those moments never really get easier. But I think the Lord has taught me a lot about how family looks a little bit different for everyone. And so for that, I'm truly thankful for the people he's put in my life over the years, both that were there for those specific seasons and those people that have been there from the very beginning. And then the people that I've met since then, I just feel very fortunate and blessed to have had those people in my life. Man, that's such an amazing story. And I knew it was a powerful one. I've, you know, I've heard it before many years ago when we first became friends, but you know, every time you tell it, uh, I'm just so proud of you. I guess my follow-up question would be, have there been things that you have learned about yourself or from that time period that have gotten more clarity the farther away you've got from it? Meaning, I know there have been certain traumatic things in my life that I've had to go through that were very confusing at the time, and I didn't really feel like I learned anything from it, or I wasn't really sure what God was teaching me. And it wasn't until like years later um, that I was able to look back and say, wow, okay, this is what you've been teaching me, God, through this, or this was something that I've learned from this, or this is, has changed me uh, for better or for worse. So have there been anything that you felt like as time has gone on and you've gotten older, wiser, farther away from it that you feel like you've learned unexpectedly? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about lessons learned over the years, when I lost my mom, I was 12 days removed from my 13th birthday, so I was a, I was a kid and was still trying to figure out what being a teenager looked like and trying to figure out who I wanted to be. And even when I lost my dad, I was still only 18. I didn't even start college. I was a couple months removed from graduating high school and still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I think in both of those seasons, and especially after losing my mom, I really suppressed those emotions. And I think that was for a few reasons. One at the time, we still had such a long way to go with mental health. And I still think that exists today, but I see how far we've come 
I remember being so fearful of telling people at that time in both of those seasons in 2006 and 2012 that I was struggling and that I was having very dark thoughts about my life and if I mattered and if people cared about me and what they would think if I just wasn't there one day, there was a a big negative connotation in regards to not being okay, regardless of what you had been through. And I feel like since then, whether it be through college experiences or people that I know personally have, who have gone on to become big advocates for mental health, there's just been such a light that has been shined on that area of day-to-day life and that it's not just a season. It's not just affects these kind of people. It can happen to anybody at any point in time for any milestone in their life. It doesn't just have to be the death of somebody's parents. So I think for me, learning that it's okay to not be okay continues to be a big factor in my day-to-day life. I just remember I got to a point where I was okay with telling people on the concourse at Auburn when they said, hey, how's it going? And the typical response would say, oh, I'm doing great, even if you weren't doing great. I would just start telling people, I'm not doing okay. I'm having a bad day. And at first, that really caught people off guard, especially for people that didn't know me or didn't know what I had been through in my life at that point in time. But I think over time, those people, maybe just a little bit through my personal experience, began to understand mental health a little bit better and that it affects people in different ways. And just because you see someone on the outside and they look like they're doing great and life's going well and they've got it all together, they those people can be the people that are struggling the most on the inside. And so I think as I've gotten older, I understand that counseling is okay and talking to somebody who's not just a friend or family member is okay. And it's okay just in general to admit that you're not at a great stage of life or you're not in a good season as long as you recognize the importance of getting past that season. It's okay to be in there in a moment. But you've got to find people or resources that will help you get from that season to a better place. So I think just everything surrounding mental health has been eye-opening me since losing them. And I think the older I get, I recognize more and more so that it's okay to wear your heart on your sleeve. It's okay to not always be in a great mood. You don't have to put on a face for people just because you think that's the expectation people have of you. I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head that we are certainly at a pinnacle point um, with mental health for better, you know, as a society that we are starting to, uh, you know, realize the importance of championing mental health and not just zipping past it or not just seeing someone post something about online of saying, hey, like, I haven't been having a good week, a month, you know, a year. And instead of being like, oh, what's their problem? It's like, hey, I probably should reach out and and see how they're doing. And so I think that's such an important thing that we need to continue uh, more than ever, particularly with all the things that each of us have had to go through as individuals and collectively as, you know, uh, a global um, species, if you will, with coronavirus that, you know, mental health is a big deal and it can impact so many other areas of our life. More than ever before, I think we're starting to see people realize the importance of that and the impact that it has on all of us. So I want to pick your brain, though. I, I think when it comes to mental health, there's an interesting intersection point, and I'm, and I think it's at a point that's different for every single person. So it's not, you know, so black and white, but what, in your opinion, or from your experience of, of going through that, do you feel like is the intersection of practical, real world, we'll call it counseling, we'll call it positive self-talk, we'll cause it, call it motivational 
media, if if you will, I don't even know if that's the right term, but at, at what point does that kind of real real world secular stuff intersect with God is in control, reading the scriptures, giving it all to him? Because I know God has given all of us certain gifts and some people have wisdom and ability to speak into people's lives. And so I don't believe it's all one thing or the other. Um, and I know God calls us to walk alongside people and love people. And so I know that he, he wants, you know, to use certain people um, in our lives and for us to be used in their lives, ultimately pointing back to him. But in your opinion or in your perspective or your experience, what's the intersection of practical steps and faith? So I think that's a great question. This is the first year of my life. And ironically, I started it right before COVID that I decided to do a chronological read through the Bible. I'd never fully read through the Bible in a year and made a decision with somebody I got to church with that we were just going to do this and hold each other accountable in January. And we were, we were going to keep each other accountable in that to move forward. And even if we miss a day or two here, to continue to push each other forward to complete this. And I think if there's one thing I've learned this year, not necessarily stories that I hadn't read before, but something that has resonated with me time and time again in each month of reading through scripture is that the Bible is full of people who faced sin and struggle just like we do today. It may look slightly different, but they all went through hardships. And the Bible is so much so about talking about how the Lord brought those people through hardships and there was redemption and there was grace in that. And I think for the longest time, especially when there was a really negative stigma around mental health, that I did not give myself any grace about those thoughts because in my mind that wasn't acceptable because that's what society told me. And so it wasn't until there became more positive thinking and the backing of scripture behind you're not the first person to struggle in regards to your circumstances or questioning where you're at in life or where the Lord is leading you. There are are a million stories in the Bible about people that have those hardships. And so I think this year, especially reading through that has made me recognize where none of us are really all that different than the people we read about in the Bible. We hold them to such a high standard and put them on a pedestal because they're in scripture and we read their names. We hear about Jesus working in their life. And I think sometimes we feel absent from that because we look at the Bible as a history book and not a living, breathing body of work. And so I think we put God in a box sometimes and think, oh, that was then, but this is now. And the circumstances now are different than then. So is he working in the same ways? The answer to that is absolutely yes. He's just as present now as he was then. And so I think that has really helped me to find that peace in sitting in a period of trials and tribulations, but knowing that so many people that have come before me have been in that valley. But the Lord always provided a mountaintop on the other end. It may not be in the time frame we wanted. It may not be the final solution that we wanted. But there's always good at the other end of that trial, that tribulation, that difficult season. And so I think if anything, it's a, it's a call to leaning into our faith even more and recognizing that he's gone before us and he is good all the time, not just in specific seasons. He's just as good in this season as he was in every season before COVID and will be just as good on the other side of COVID as he is today. And so I think when you get to that point where you feel that peace, hopefully it shifts the perspective of people that listen to this because it did for me. And I just found so much comfort in knowing that 
he's using those trials and tribulations to shape how he will use us moving forward with the people that he puts in our lives to interact with. I love that you talked about that God gives us, you know, as many hills as he does valleys, meaning as many times as we're feeling like, man, I'm struggling this week, this day, this year sucked, you know, it's never for no purpose or there's never a, not a purpose behind you know, those valleys for us to, to then be able to get up to the mountaintop and appreciate where we've been. How do you feel like we should be thinking about not always trying to rush through those down moments and always be craving or looking at or, or fixating on always the mountaintops? Because as much as I think we would all say we all want those things and none of us aspire to have difficult days, difficult moments, disappointments, pain and hurt, there truly is a lot that we can learn from those things, and God um, can allow us to learn from those things as long as we're not always fixated and trying to run from them. But truly, sometimes, you know, God says, you know, be still and know that I am God. Or we talk about, uh, you know, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so there's not this promise of, hey, it's always going to be this perfect time in your life. But how do you think we can do better with learning to wait on God's timing and his process and not always trying to force things or say, God, you know, I feel like I've been in a valley long enough. I, th- I feel like it's time for me to summit this without you. And we completely miss the point and we never uh, know what God's timing in because the Bible promises us that God's timing is so different from our own and our understanding or not God. So how can we do better with that in, in your opinion or in a story or an experience that you have? Because I know you're so wise and I would love to hear your perspective on this. So I think that today's society with social media, with Amazon Prime, with so many things in life, if we want it, it's a couple clicks and it's instant. And so in that sense, we're not used to having to really wait for many things these days. And that's what makes faith difficult at times because it's so counterintuitive to the things of this earth. The Lord promises that he's going to prosper us and give us a future, but he doesn't say that's going to be in this timeline. And so for me, after I lost my parents, since that time, I've always yearned to have a family of my own because I just don't feel that I have that to an extent. Now, I love my extended family and they're phenomenal, but I want people that I can call my own and that's a future spouse, that's kids, all of that. And so... I went into college thinking, all right, God, I had a checklist. Allow me to go to Auburn. Allow me to graduate. Meet somebody when I'm there. Get married. Start life. And it was just a checklist. And it was like, God, if you give me this, 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 and this, then I'll be happy and life will be perfect. At least in my eyes, that's what perfect looked like. And so then inevitably there became disappointment when either relationships didn't work out when I was in school or I got to the end of those four years and life didn't look like what I expected it to look like. And I've struggled with that at almost every point in my life post losing my parents, if I'm being completely honest, because I've had that desire from 13 years old and now I'm 27 and that still hasn't happened. And so I think through each of those seasons of life, I try to reflect at the end of each year and spend a couple of days around Christmas, post holidays before New Year's and just take a little bit of time to myself to think about what went well and what didn't and what I can improve on and things that I could change. And at the end of each one of those years, 
especially years where I was in a relationship that a relationship unfortunately ended, I had a lot of guilt because I felt that I didn't handle those relationships the way the Lord intended me to in the sense that I don't feel like I was leading them spiritually the way the Lord had called me to do. It was almost a sense of I was so ready for a relationship that I was willing to look past the fact that the Lord still had some preparing for me to do before I was ready to lead somebody in that way. But I was so adamant about my plan that I was just willing to push that out of the picture and move forward and tried to make relationships work that he hadn't called me to. And I don't mean that in any kind of disrespect to previous relationships. They were all phenomenal people. I just was not in a place where I was ready to lead them the way that they deserved to be led. And so for so many years after those relationships, I held a lot of shame in knowing that they deserved so much better than I gave them at the time. And that was a long period of time where I just did not forgive myself. And that's something I've always struggled with in my life is looking back on past mistakes, especially during my college years and just feeling a lot of shame and thinking there was a season in my life that yes, I still had a personal relationship with the Lord, but my actions didn't reflect that. And I, I worried a lot about what people thought about me and if how, what my actions were perceived as. And so post-college, I didn't date anybody for about five years until my most recent relationship. And during that time, I won't say there weren't seasons where I looked at somebody, I was like, God, this could work. This isn't what you're calling me to, but this could work. But I spent a lot more time simply in prayer that the Lord would prepare me in those days to be who he needed me to be for whoever that future relationship was with. And I think it took so many times of jumping into a relationship, it not working out, to realize that that was going to be on God's timing regardless of what I, what I did. And there was no amount of me jumping into a relationship that was going to change his timing. And I remember one day, post-college, probably 2017, 2018, where there was just this moment. Or in the past, I'd been like, sure, God, you can have this, 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 and this, but I'm going to keep relationships. That's just something that I don't feel comfortable giving away. That's just something I'm going to hold on to. But you can have these things. And I was picking and choosing what I gave to the Lord and what I said, no, I'm still going to handle this myself. But at that point, I just said, God, this is all yours. I'm done. Because clearly what I'm doing is not working. And it hasn't been successful. And I've been hurt by these relationships. And I've hurt other people through these relationships. I don't want that. And so take this time, however long this season is, and just help prepare me to be who I need to be in a relationship. Give me everything that I need to do to lead somebody in a way that points them towards you every day. And so I went through five years where I, I was not in a relationship between college and 2020. And although that most, relationship, most recent relationship didn't work out, I'm so thankful for the lessons learned because I felt that I was in a much better place to actually truly lead somebody spiritually for the first time in my life. And for some people that happens at 20 years old and that's great. I'm so happy for those people, but it's one of those lessons learned over time where I thought I was there at 20 and I thought I was there at 22 and I thought I was there at 25, but I wasn't. And I'm thankful that the Lord 
worked it out that way because in those moments where I was heartbroken and thought, I thought this person was going to be the one, or I thought that this relationship was everything that I wanted it to be to a point where it's like, God, you knew that you still had some repairing in my heart that needed to be done. And I'm so glad that although in those seasons, it was so difficult for me to be patient and wait. And you closed a lot of doors that I tried to open, but weren't the right doors that ultimately led me to a place where I felt confident about where he has me in regards to relationships. And I think a lot of the lessons learned from those previous relationships I took into my most recent one. And even though that one didn't work out, there's still things I learned in that relationship that I'll carry over into the next one. And so I think that place of just being patient and trusting God's plan is hard. And I'm not going to say there's still not days today where I want that. And I'm like, God, I'm 27. I thought I was going to be married at 22. When's this going to happen? But I think when you can get to a place where you can just fully give that to God for the first time and just trust that this isn't on my timeline or what I expected it to be, but I'm confident that, or maybe that I'm even disappointed. That's not, that's okay. Like you, you telling God that you are disappointed is okay. He's not surprised by that. In fact, he's already aware that you are disappointed, but I remain confident at this point that whenever that happens and whoever that's with, it's going to be so much better than I could have ever imagined. And that checklist that I talked about at the beginning of this segment of God, if you give me this, 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 and this, I'll compare it to whatever that day is that I'm walking down the aisle and saying I do with my future wife and saying, man, God, I'm so thankful you didn't give me what that checklist was at 21, at 23, at 26, because what you had for me was so much better than what I asked for back then. I cannot tell you absolutely how much I relate to everything you just shared. Um, And it's a similar journey and story that I'm walking alongside you in this season of feeling like, man, it's been a long time. It's been a lot of years since I've gone out and pursued someone, not because I haven't wanted to, but I feel like, man, there, there are some things that God has placed on my heart that he has opened my eyes to that I really need to lean into and fix if I know I'm going to be at my best. But transparently, man, uh, not to speak this over you as, as a, uh, disappointment is coming your way, but just, uh, you know, as, as a watch out of, I kind of put all the eggs in, in my basket or someone else's basket this year, because I met this amazing person in the midst of all this crappy 2020 stuff. And I was like, man, this is why I've been working on myself so that I could be with someone amazing like this. There's so many qualities about them that they have that I've never experienced in anyone. And even from a friendship level, much less a relationship level, And I I just think, you know, I'm not here to say they're the one, but they're coming pretty (laughs) daggum close. And it was really hard because it didn't work out and it was really unexpected. And it really left me really, really, really disappointed because I really realized, you know, I was doing all the right things, saying all the right things, leading in the right way, saying no to temptation, being very disciplined, you know, doing all the things that I wish I had always done previously in my life when I was a much younger and immature and less disciplined version of myself. And so I kind of realized, like, I not only was disappointed that the situation didn't work out, but I was honestly 
pretty disappointed in God because I was like, why did you bring this person into my life only then to like rip them away in a very jarring way that was unexpected and really left me pretty broken. And I really realized, you know, the more I journaled through it and thought back on it and in my own thought process that they truly were pure intentions into the positive things that I'd always aspired to be as a man in a relationship and and how to lead. But I kind of realized that I was starting to do this kind of tit for tat thing with God where it's like, hey, God, I'm going to do all the things you want me to do. But on the back end of this, I want you to give me this woman, you know, like I'm going to do what you want me to do for a season for whatever. But on the back end of that, I want you to give me this person. And God's like, no, no, no. You know, you read all the scriptures about God being a jealous God. And, you know, I didn't really know to this day why it didn't work out. It really ended in an abrupt, unexpected and hurtful way. Um, But I really learned a lot about we have to pursue the heart of God and pursue God's plan for our life without this subconscious. Because it wasn't like I was going through this consciously being like, yes, this is why I'm going to do it. But we, we can't allow ourselves to step into situations uh, as friends with significant others, uh, with ministry opportunities, with volunteering, with service to other people and organizations with, I'm going to kind of put in my quarter into this gumball machine, God, and I want you to give me the exact color that, you know of gumball that I want. Uh, and I don't want any other color. It, it has to be the red one. And so I just think that there's a lot of danger in that. And I hope that uh, you can avoid my mistake but um, that was just kind of a, a moment where, you know, I hadn't really talked about this in detail yet, but I was really relating with what you're saying. And so sorry for rambling about kind of my life this year, but it kind of leads into uh, a transition uh, of, I want to know about Will Gibson in 2020. Uh, how has this year been for you? So 2020 started on a really interesting note, I would say. At the end of 2019, I had met somebody, and we had begun talking at the time, but lived in separate places. And then at that time, it was a, if we have the opportunity to hang out, we will, but we'll see what happens. And that ended up turning into a relationship. But at the time, I was still doing a lot of travel. I I had gone to... Washington DC at the end of 2019 and then in early 2020 I had done Philadelphia and a couple other places and then during March right around when everything shut down over here a couple of my really good friends and myself had traveled to South America and were there when everything really shut down here and so I had had all these big plans I remember making uh, notes on my iPhone of visiting 12 new places in 2020 and it was like, man, the the wind is behind my sails. I've got so much going for me right now. This is going to be such a great year of of growth. I was moving to a new office for work, and so there was going to be a lot of new people there. My previous office, I was one of the only people on my floor, so there wasn't a whole lot going on. I was like, man, there's just so much going on in 2020. It's going to be great. And then COVID hit, and obviously so much of the world changed for so many people. And right before COVID, at the beginning of March, you know, right around here, around my hometown where I grew up in Mount Juliet and Old Hickory, was hit by a devastating tornado for really the first time in my life. And so I had planned to come home and help with the rebuild effort and recovery. And that all just changed in an instant. And I remember 
<laughs> looking at my notes in my calendar about September, October, and I stumbled upon the notes that I made of the places that I was going to visit. And there were plans for January, February, March, and then it was empty because everything was paused. And so what 2020 gave me the ability to do, especially since early on we didn't know the severity of everything was going on, we were pretty much in a full lockdown in Atlanta, was that it really gave me time to focus on the relationship. The person I dated at the time moved to Atlanta, and so it allowed us to spend a lot of time together. And with my roommate, because we really weren't seeing too many of the people early on. So a combination of those things, plus calling people that, since I had more time on my plate, that I didn't necessarily talk to a whole lot or had over the years used the excuse of being busy to say I didn't have time to do those things. So 2020, especially early on, taught me a lot about relationships and the importance of communication in those. And also that I use being busy as an excuse a lot in my life when I'm not necessarily busy. Sometimes busy looks like I'm on my computer watching YouTube videos that don't provide a whole lot of value add as far as, I don't know, I'm watching something about the stock market. We need to edit that out. Me talking about YouTube is not going to be a good one. Hold on. (laughs) So I use the excuse of being busy a lot in my life when it doesn't necessarily look like being busy. And sometimes that's I'm scrolling through Instagram for 30 or 45 minutes. It's I'm on Facebook or I'm looking through Twitter and it's not really busy. It's just what I've termed as busy in my life. And so I've tried to be better about, especially in this time where I've really, I'm not commuting to work in Atlanta. So I've got the time in the morning, afternoon, I've got a lot more flexibility to reconnect with people, but also just continue to pour into my current relationships, maybe more than I have been. And so through that, I just learned a lot about refocusing my priorities and trying to push noise to the side because it was really one of the first times in my life that there just wasn't a whole lot of static, whether that be travel, whether that be constantly hanging out with people to as a way to just be social and get my mind off things. And I think really for one of the first times I had to just sit and thought. And for me personally, that was hard at times because I think there were certain parts of losing my parents and that coping process that I never really confronted. And so for the first time in my life, I just had to confront those. I couldn't run from them by jumping on a plane or getting in a car or driving over to somebody's house and hanging out. I I had to actually confront some of those things that I hadn't talked about for a long time. And that was difficult. But again, I go back to being thankful that the Lord puts people in our life for specific seasons and for certain mountain times, because those people were really helpful in allowing me to get those things off my chest and just talk through some struggles that I was having. And then I think the second half of quarantine has been a lot about looking at where I want to go next with the thought that at some point in time, life is going to return to quote-unquote normal, right? And so I want to leave quarantine better than I came into it. And so for me, that looked like doing this chronological read through the Bible. It looked like learning Spanish after work. And then most recently, deciding to apply and then go back to grad school starting in January. And so there was a lot of passions or goals that I had that I'd really put on hold before everything happened. And to me, I just hit a point where I was like, Will, if you're not going to do it now, when are you ever going to do it? 
And so I was really thankful and I'm still very thankful. There's so many people that were, have helped with those processes, whether it be graduate school applications and my letters of recommendation or people critiquing my personal statements or resumes to people motivating me to continue to stay updated on learning Spanish or calling me out maybe when I'm not doing it. Um, things like that have just been really beneficial. I think community is so important and, again, something I've learned more of in 2020 because I think, especially with a church community, I don't think I had that until I moved to Atlanta and started with the church that I'm at. And I think even then I still pushed it away for a long time because I just haven't really had that sense of community. And I think I associate that and friends as two separate things. So hopefully people can understand what I'm trying to say when I talk about community versus having friends. And so I just got to a point where I realized, especially because I wasn't going to be going home for months and months, that I needed to have some kind of community. And I think that is something that I will forever be appreciative for during this season of life is I finally said yes to people that wanted me to be a part of their life for so long. They just wanted to pour into me and love on me and hold me accountable. And so I think if I had to pick one thing that I'm most appreciative for in this season, it's just these people never gave up on trying to pull me in and allow me to be a part of their, their family. And they have just been there every step of the way. And I'm so appreciative for those people and so thankful that the Lord put them in my life in Atlanta. It's sad to me that it took COVID for me to realize the significance of that, but I'm glad that it happened. I'm glad I have those people. And so I guess these last couple months of 2020, which it's hard to believe it's almost Thanksgiving at this point, is really just about continuing to move forward with that progress has been made in 2020 and not let that momentum die off when the calendar turns to January 1, 2021, because I think in some senses we think that, oh, we just need to get 2020 behind us. But the reality is there's still going to be a lot of uncertainty on the other side of January 1, 2021. But then even when the vaccine or how we move forward with COVID occurs and in whatever time frame that looks like, not letting these things die off or not letting all this growth that's occurred during this time just fall by the wayside because I fall back into being busy. I, I hope that people hold me accountable to those things and that I continue to realize what growth has occurred and what the Lord has brought me through this during this time and just don't get caught up in the ways of the world again and being back to moving 90 miles a minute and being on the road. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I hope people continue to motivate me and encourage and that I can do for other people, right? Because I think I've talked to so many friends have who have picked up a new hobby or they found a new passion or they've decided to pursue something they've put on hold. And I want to be that way for other people too, because I think there's been so many negatives that have happened during this time. Right. I mean, there's no, there's no way we can put into words how tragic the loss of life we've had and the change in day to day life, the loss of jobs, the loss of livelihood. There, there's no way we can accurately quantify how devastating that is. But I also think it's important that in, times of great hardship we look for positives because i truly think it's how we make it through those times and how we move forward once we get to the other side of it because certainly there will be the negatives of covid that will always be there and that won't change right but it's important for us to be able to take those times and grow from them and learn from them and be better as a result of hardships 
I, I always go back when I think about the loss of my parents and asking for that story of God use me in a way and use my life or shape my testimony in a way where people will listen, where I can actually make a difference for your kingdom. Because at eight, nine, ten years old, I said, God, no one is going to listen to this and want to do anything different. They just won't. And certainly I did not ask to lose my parents, and I would do anything in the world to have them back today. But had I not been through those events, I would not be who I am today. And a lot of that's good, but some of that's negative. Some of that shapes me in a very negative way. And I think, again, it just goes back to having grace for other people and knowing that we're all at a different stage of life. And and the events in our life have shaped us in good, bad, and neutral ways. And I think we just look at people's life and what we see through Instagram, through Facebook, through the 10-minute interaction we have with them and think this is who they are. And we put people in a box a lot. I just think that's a very dangerous thing to do because we have no idea what people are walking through. And I can say that because personally I know that there's maybe one or two people on this entire earth that know truly what life has looked like for me most days. And they still don't know everything. So if a person like myself who will talk to anybody and everybody in the world about my story still hasn't shined a light on every part of my story to everybody, I know there's people out there that are carrying a lot and harboring a lot of difficulty in their heart that just don't feel comfortable sharing that. And so the reason that I am the way that I am about my testimony and my story and the hardships in my life is not because I want people to look at me and say, man, well, look at what you've overcome. Look at what you've been able to do. I don't know if I could have done it. The reality is I haven't done anything. Without my faith, I would not be here today. And the Lord has truly delivered me through those seasons and put people in my life that are the sole reason I am here today. I would not be here had it not been for him and the people he's put in my life because there was a time in my life I very seriously contemplated if I wanted to be here anymore. That was a really dark time, but I I vividly remember the Lord telling me there's more to this. This is not the end of your story. In fact, this is the beginning of your story. And there's going to be people that come to know me because of the hardships that you've gone through. And so I see mistakes that I've made in my life. And I think about, again, circling back to the relationships that I've had or people that I've dated between those relationships and how those things have not worked out or just points in day-to-day life where I still sin and fall short, right? That, I try to be better about giving myself grace because for most of my life, grace was not a concept I knew as far as extending it to myself. I was so quick to forgive other people, but I wouldn't forgive myself for my mistakes. And I went back to, there's so much about my life that people don't know that affects who I am in so many ways and, and hurts on a daily basis. And I know other people are walking through that. And so because of that, I just try to be better. And I'm not always great about it, if I'm being honest. But I try to be better about giving people grace and not being judgmental because I have no idea what they're walking through. You see the tip of the iceberg in people's life, and that's it. And so because of that, and especially in these times, I think we can all afford to be a little bit kinder to the people around us because unless we're in their shoes, we have no idea what they're walking through. Man, after listening to that, if there is one thing I can affirm in you, because there are many things I could affirm in you, It is to celebrate that you absolutely, truly do live out pursuing and championing others. You've always been 
such a joy uh, to be around. And, you know, even in the midst of being around all of our friend groups at Auburn Games and times when there's so many a million things going on, you've always been so great to come up and say, you know, how's life? What's been going on in your life? And so I can absolutely affirm that you are not uh, just all talk, but you absolutely do live that out. And it's something that I know I aspire to be better at that. And I, I look to you as, as a champion in that category. One thing you were talking about, and we've talked about some different forms of disappointments um, and pain in, in so far in this episode. And it's something that all of us carry, uh, whether you're Eric or Will, or you're listening to this episode, is that there are all things that we're disappointed by or that have hurt us in the past, some of which we've been able to get through and some of which we're still struggling to get through. And, and even some of that, you know, we're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But something that I want to just share as an encouragement uh, for everyone listening today, and, and even just for myself, is just this constant reminder to, you know, view life through remembering, uh, you know, kind of this struggle between earthly things, time on earth, and then the eternal. And I think sometimes we get so romanticized with this idea of how can I live this perfect, pain-free life on earth. And I think that there is a conscious decision that we make in those areas. And then there are even subconscious things that we don't realize until we get halfway down, you know, or halfway into something that we're like, wow, like I really am putting a lot of emphasis, a lot of hopefulness, a lot of um, security into achieving this thing when it could just leave you, you know, at the snap of a fingers and it's gone, you know, whether that's money, uh, whether that's a nice car, whether that's um, a nice living situation, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. And it's not that we shouldn't aspire for those things, but I've really had to challenge myself this year and think about it's not always about, and, I, and I've done this through reading scriptures, and, and the more you read it, the more you realize the Bible's like, hey, straight up, you're going to suffer. And not that you should feel guilty if you're not suffering, um, but this, this world, is, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be tough to deny yourself certain things, to pursue people, even in the midst of them being jerks to you, to love, to give grace, um, and to ultimately always speak truth and stand for something bigger than yourself, which is Jesus. And so I just want to encourage everyone today to think about sometimes we lose sleep over things, we have anxiety over things that when you look at it from an eternal perspective of purely just time in itself, you know, we're stressing over things that are just going to go by at the blink of an eye rather than concerning our heart and our mind and our thoughts and our dreams on things that are going to last forever. And so that's just something I've had to check my gut, my ego, my aspirations, my dreams, you know, this year. And it's a continual, it's a continual process for me. So I'm not <laughs> the master at that. So I want to get your perspective on something. You know, you talked about the importance of relationships this year. And everybody I've ever talked to, you know, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's my actual friends, whether it's in passing at church or just somewhere in Nashville, you know, whenever we talk about 2020 and what could we do, be doing better, like 99.9%, .9%, if not 100% of every single person's first answer is relationships, is wow, I wasn't doing this good before then. And I, to be honest, I don't know if you rewinded to 2019 and if you asked any of us to rank like how well we do things, if any of us would say, yeah, I do, you know, relationships and not the idea of romantic ones, but even, you know, platonic friendship ones. I don't know if any of us would say, yeah, we do them amazing. But I just think it's an interesting moment in time and an insight 
that the first thing that comes out of everybody's mouth when they talk about what could I do better, what have I learned in 2020, it's that the importance of relationships have somehow like left our mind and our priority list previously. And now we're like, oh my goodness, this is so important. Is it as simple to say that maybe all of us, if I had to hypothesize here for a minute, is it, you know, one being that we all live our life on social media, everything is consumed there, whether consciously or subconsciously, we think that if we follow our friends, that we can somehow stay in touch with what's actually going on in their life, which as we've talked about, you're seeing just you know, 3% of what's actually going on in people's lives. And you're really missing probably the real big moments, which are the difficult ones that never get posted about that, you know, truly define friendships. Is it that we all have used this excuse that we're always too busy um, because we've just been, it's a lack of prioritization and really realizing what's truly eternal or worthwhile being relationships over work, career, you know, educational, whatever, personal obligations or is it something deeper and that's that we all kind of feel like we can just flip the switch on that maybe friends aren't that important that they'll always be there so is it that we've cheapened that and we think we can just easily flip that on i don't know tell me what what is your perspective on why is everyone saying relationships is number one for them this year so i think to an extent before covid we took relationships a bit for granted i think that's fair to say for almost everybody for me, I'm such a relationship-driven person that I I try to be constant in keeping up with people. But I also think that's different depending on your friendship and how you value your friendship, right? So for some of my friends, us texting back and forth once a week is us keeping up and us keeping in good communication. For some of my friends, that looks like a few phone calls every week or a phone call once a month. And so... Truly, I think it depends on you and your uniqueness and how you look at relationships and, and what it feels like to be in a relationship, not romantically, but in a relationship with someone else. And then also how they receive that relationship, right? So if you and I were having a conversation, you and I might say, or I might say, Eric, we, if we talk twice a month, that's good. Whereas, and that, I would say maybe that's over the phone and maybe that's an hour each time. Your view of maintaining a relationship might be that we text twice a week and maybe have a phone call for 30 minutes once a month. So I think that just looks different for everybody. And I think we all have a different view of a relationship. And some of that I think is introvert versus extrovert. But some of that is simply I think comes down to what we feel is adequate for maintaining a relationship. There's people in my life that I talk to every day or almost every day. There's people in my life that I personally feel I'm just as good of friends with that I talk to once a month. And it's not that those relationships are any more or less valuable in my eyes. It's just that my communication with this person just looks different than my communication with that person. And so certainly I think a little bit of it is as we've had to take a step back and can't be physically in person and seeing each other as much as we normally have plays a role in us kind of reimagining the value of relationships. And I think what you said as well, you hit the nail on the head with social media. It feels at times that we're caught up in, in the know on someone else's life, even if we're not asking about those things. But I really think that's a dangerous place to be. And it goes back to what we just talked about with, unless you're really asking somebody hard questions and following up with them, no one 
I don't say I won't say no one because some people will be raw and be real on their social media and say, hey, this is a difficult season. But a lot of people don't. And they're still struggling through things just as much as the person that was vulnerable enough to post what they're posting. It goes back to me saying, you know, hey, I'm very open about the difficulties in my life and things I've struggled with and the loss of my parents. That doesn't mean the person that's not one to be open about those things is struggling about them even less. In fact, they may be struggling even more than I am. I think so much of that just comes down to the individual. And I think that it'll be really interesting as we go back to, again, quote unquote, normal life, how our relationships change again, because to an extent they changed when we went pre-COVID to COVID times. And then I guess for me personally, I want to see if we go back to where we were or if we'll be forever changed, or maybe it's seasonal. Maybe it's for the next three years, we continue to evaluate those relationships differently. But then over time, as normalcy becomes a commonality again, we go back to the way things were before. So I just think with each person, you've got to ask yourself, okay, in this relationship, and so much of that comes down to communication between you and the other person, is continuing to be very real and raw with your closest friends. I always tell people, that feel like they're going through a difficult season or that are going through a difficult season, excuse me, that you don't have to have 50 people that you talk to about what you're going through, but you need to have at least one person that you can be open and honest about everything in your life because we are not meant to harbor those emotions internally. It's just not healthy. I mean, the Lord put us in this world to have community with other people, right? And so it's a very dangerous place. And I can say this because I've been through that experience where after I lost my mom, I just didn't talk to anything about anybody and said I was okay and tried to move on. And it's just not helpful. In fact, it's it's harmful. It's the exact opposite. And so that's great if you're the kind of person that can share with 20 people what's going on in your life and what difficulties you're going through. But if it's not 20 and you're not comfortable with that, you just need to find one person that you feel that you can confide in and that you can truly share the depths of your heart with them and I think those people, if you haven't done that for the first time, will be amazed at how much better you feel. I'm not saying it's going to be easy the first time you share that. It may not be easy the first five times you share that. But over time, you'll realize it does me so good to have somebody else that knows what I'm walking through and that can be there with me through that season. Okay, so not to put you on the hot seat, but we've talked about it a couple times without actually talking about it or teeing it up as a formal question. But I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on dating personally, not looking for the dirty details or stories? I mean, hey, if you want to throw it out there, go for it. This is your episode. But tell me about Will Gibson dating in 2020. You know, what are the highs and lows? Just what are your overall thoughts on dating culture uh, right now? I think for the longest time in my life, I had a list of things that I was looking for in a relationship. And not that those things don't still exist. There's things that are absolutely deal breakers for me. I, I couldn't see myself dating someone that doesn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. And then there's things that matter to me. Like, I'm a very outgoing, extroverted person. So because of that, typically I grad, gravitate towards people that are also extroverts. But I think this is a great example. As I get older, I see maybe that's not what I need. Maybe I need someone that's more introverted. Or maybe it's not as big of a priority as it was for me previously. And then there's things that I'm passionate about, like travel or Auburn. And those are things that are really important to me. And I think there's over time a balance of realizing that relationships are so much about give and take. But also there's so much about 
letting people live out their passions and not not trying to make somebody they're not. And so I think the older I get, the more open I am to maybe considering people that I wouldn't have considered at 22, 23, because my view over time has changed of what I thought was exactly what I wanted as far as personality in a relationship. There's pillars that will never change. Again, I, I couldn't see myself dating someone that doesn't have a personal relationship with the Lord because it's it's the foundation for everything that I do in my life, for every decision I make, for every action I take. So I think just being more open to first dates. I think in the past there's so many times that I would have maybe said no to a first date where now I, I would think, you know, let's go and maybe there's a spark and maybe there's not. But I just think over time, the the biggest thing is that I've just, my view of exactly what I wanted has evolved. And I think that does for everybody to an extent. I get that I'm kind of rambling here, but just being more open to first dates and open to, and especially now it's difficult to balance after just exiting out of a relationship and trying to figure out when truly it's the, the, the best time to dive back in and start dating again. But yeah, I, and also being open to people's suggestions. I, I trust close friends a lot more these days because it's it's so hard to meet people, I think, once you get to a certain age. Sometimes because of where we live, there's so many people at our age that are already married. And that's exciting. I'm I'm so happy for those people. But the older we get, uh, like late mid to late 20s, it's it's so much harder to meet single people that share the same beliefs that we do. And so because of that, I trust the suggestions of friends when they say, hey, I think you could be interested in so-and-so. And my first thought in the past would probably have been like, I don't know how I feel about being set up with somebody. But now it's like, you know me well, and you know things that are important to me and things that matter to me, and you know this person. And so if you're willing to make that suggestion, I don't see get any harm in getting together and, and seeing if there's any compatibility there. Man, again, I really resonate with a lot of different things you're saying, and it's really, you know, amazing to sit here and listen to you and all the wise things you have to share. And I just really appreciate how transparent you've been because it's really made me stop in my tracks. I mean, we're we're, we're sitting here having recording this podcast, but rather than like thinking about, oh, what's my next question for Will? Like, I'm really taking in what you're saying, and it's really bringing out a lot of like things in me. And so, I guess like one of the things I would share is. Like I recently really had this, like, I don't want to see a self-deprecating because that's like probably the low of the lows, but I really regretted not pursuing these certain women in my life that I met while I was at Auburn because now I really look at like, wow, like these were some amazing women and and, and not like, oh, they're so attractive because they certainly were, but just what they stood for, the, the values that they placed on family life, uh, on Jesus, on serving other people. And I don't know what advice I could give to my younger, immature self to make him take it more seriously. Um, And not that I didn't take dating seriously in college, but there were just a lot of people that I was like, oh, like, I don't really know how I feel about her or let's just be friends. And I'm like kicking myself now because I don't know if that's just, you know, an amazing part about Auburn or just the older I've gotten, like the, the fewer choices there are out there. But I've really realized, like, man, like, I really miss some quality, Jesus-loving, 
seeking women and they were all right in front of me and they were all single at the time at Auburn and I chose to be friends. And, you know, now I really, really regret that because like in my experience and not to judge people per se, but I've really realized one of the struggles of being a Christian and, and trying to look at women or pursue women with the idea of, Hey, we're going to date to know each other exclusively on a much deeper level with the idea that then that would transform into a marriage is, you know, faith and dating is pretty challenging these days. And I don't know if that's just, you know, Nashville itself or, you know, I really didn't date a lot when I lived in Atlanta the last four years. So maybe you can talk about Atlanta, but I feel like so many people I've met this year in Nashville since moving here in February, it's purely been like they virtue signal like, hey, like, faith is important to me and you know Jesus is all about Jesus but then like you ask them like this deeper level questions of like what's your favorite bible verse or what has God been teaching you lately or you know all these different things and I'm not here to judge and say because we could all you know point to people that absolutely you know can just throw out bible verses or could tell you the order of of the you know the bible books in the bible from Genesis to 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 Revelation and they're not awesome people and so that doesn't make you a great Christian it's really about your true pursuit of Jesus and the things Jesus stood for in, in his words or, or uh, commands to us. But I feel like dating has become this whole, like, do you put Christian in your dating profile? And do you have a Bible verse, you know, in your Instagram bio? If you have those two things, you are a Christian and I'm just looking for someone else to do that, but nothing beyond that. And so I've really struggled, man. Like, I don't know what, you know, people want a first date to be. I don't know if women are watching too many like lifetime or christmas rom-com movies lately where you think i'm just supposed to like or we're supposed to just jump across the table and like jump each other's bones and make out or or there's supposed to be this like crazy magical spark you know like i just really stroll with this idea that you can come to this conclusion and maybe if it's just radically you know turned off not in a sexual way but like if there's just so many things about them that repulses you on the first date, you're like, yeah, nope. But it's like, we are living in this culture, at least in my experience, because I've gone on probably like 10 first dates this year. And like a lot of them, gosh, maybe one or two of them actually turned into second dates. Well, actually probably like three. So probably three have turned into second dates. So three, three out of the 10. And I would say probably eight out of the 10, I was like, absolutely. I would love to go on a second date with this person. And it's really frustrating because you don't get this like, hey, like this is what I saw in you. Like here's your scorecard back or I wish you would have done this or said this or didn't say this. You know, because I really struggle on the first date. I'm not the guy that's like, when would you like to get married? How many kids would you like to have? Uh, Are kids going to public or private on the first date? Like I'm not that like weird, psycho, way too serious guy. But like I'm absolutely, if you want to talk about like how, if you say, hey, faith's important to me. I want to know more about that. I want to dig deeper. I feel absolutely that is a great um, place to anchor on a first date of like, tell me what God's doing in your life. What have you been learning? Like all these things. And I, I just, I don't know, man. I know it's a really long rambly answer, but I, I, I just would be interested to see if you have anything to say, anything about that. Is it a Nashville thing? Are you experiencing this in Atlanta? But I just feel like faith and dating is this weird thing right now where it's just like, again, do you put that you're a Christian in your dating profile and do you have a Bible verse in your Instagram bio? (laughs) And that's it. There's nothing more to that. It's, you know, sometimes I go to church or like, I don't really do anything else. And I'm like, 
where's all my real Jesus loving, Jesus pursuing, like put my life out there for Jesus women. And I guess the other thing I would share before <laughs> I stop rambling and let you talk again, I'm sorry. Uh, this has just been like a really point, big point of contention in my life this year. But I don't know if you've read Ben Stewart's book, but he talks about this metaphor for dating and ultimately marriage, essentially, and, and how what the role faith plays into that. And he, he kind of puts it out there in this metaphor of it's like running a marathon. And I actually really, really agree with this metaphor. And it makes a lot of sense to me because it's this idea that you're going to meet a lot of different believers out there. Like we're all going to finish the race because we all ultimately believe in Jesus or say we do. <laughs> but it's this idea built around that there are many different mile paces that you're going to run. And I really identify the story because I used to be a runner. But we can all think about like couch to 5K. Like we're like, man, we're going to run really slow. And it's like... If you're running a 12-minute mile in this marathon, you absolutely do not want to go start the race and try to keep up with the guy or gal that's running a six-minute mile because you may be able to keep up with them for a mile or two, but then you're eventually going to either A, hurt yourself, or B, get so exhausted and tired that you can like no longer finish the race and you have to start walking. And so it's this idea that it's not about like really judging people per se in, in a negative light of like their faith in dating, but it's more about trying to think about how how fast is this person running, again, met- metaphorically, in, in their faith journey, and that we should find other people or look for other guys and gals that are running the same pace as us, that aspire to finish the race in, in the same intensity as us. And it's not to say we're better or worse because we want to run the six-minute mile versus the 12-minute, but it's just to realistically like, hey, this is where we are at this point in time. And we certainly can speed up, or we certainly may need to slow down, but I just think that that really stuck with me as someone who identifies as like, I want to give it all to Jesus. I want to go full speed all the way. And it's been so freaking frustrating that I haven't been able to find that person. And not in a selfish way, but it's like, you see all these people on their dating profile, and they put like, faith is the most important thing to me. And then you you get to the first date or, or, or the second date or whatever, and you talk to them about it. And you really realize, and not from judgmental, like, hey, I'm better than these people, but it's like, you're telling me that this is the most important thing in your life, but like, all you do is go to church one one day a week. There's no Bible study. There's no like community group. There's no serving other people. And it's just lacking kind of the intensity that I would have assumed that if you're talking about what's the most important thing in my life, it's faith, that it's like, where's that daily pursuit? I think especially in the part of the country we're in, the Bible Belt, it's very common to see, to check a box and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, because it's more of a commonality where we're at, right? What someone couldn't see from listening to your podcast is I actually looked back because I knew where you're going with the Ben Ben Stewart sermon. And that is a picture that I think of vividly when I'm thinking about relationships is it's so important to be equally yoked. And it's so important to be pursuing faith in the same direction. And there's nothing wrong with each of us being at different points in our faith. In fact, that's a commonality. Not everybody has been a Christian for 40 plus years. I have not been a Christian for 40 plus years. And so we're all at a different point in our faith journey, but it's important to find someone who's running the race similar to where you are. Part of that is certainly for the accountability. If I stumble or if I fall, I want someone to be able to call me out on that because I think it's important in your faith. 
it's important for me to be able to lead spiritually, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be points in my life where I'm falling short of that. And I want whoever that person is to feel confident that they can call me out in that regard and say, hey, you know what, Will, you're missing the mark in this regard, and it's where you need to step up. I think that kind of criticism is good because it tells me, one, I, I may not recognize it, right? It may be something that I'm not even seeing in my life. So having someone will tell me that is important. But two, it's only going to help both of us as we move forward. And likewise, I would hope that I would find someone that would challenge me to challenge them in their faith when it is that they slip up or they're not where the expectation is for their their faith and their relationship. So I just think it's so hard, like you said, in dating to know when to ask difficult questions in general, not necessarily just around faith, but I'm so much at a point in my life and maybe it's that I'm starting to get older and I feel that there's some magical clock that's ticking, but I don't want to ask the easy questions that everybody has their standard general response to. I want to get to know that person as soon as possible so that I can figure out if on a deep level we're compatible. And if not, I personally don't want to waste their time or mine because I don't want to potentially keep somebody from whoever that person is for them and vice versa. I would hope that same thing for me. Right. And so that's something that I've struggled with in dating, especially post-college in general is knowing when is a good time to ask those questions. Cause it almost feels that dating is a game to an extent these days. And it's, you don't, want to seem too interested or you don't want to respond too quick. And I'll be honest, that's just not who I am. I'm the kind of person that is, when I see your message and I have a chance to respond, I'm going to do it. Or if there's questions that I want to ask you to get to know you better, I'm not going to feel that we should avoid having real genuine conversation. Cause I almost, I almost feel like it's, you have to impress somebody with those initial conversations and it's got to be this big elaborate, like how do I make them laugh or what do I, what do I tell to get the, their attention? Or as I feel like for me personally, I'm just going to be re and this is something I've just discovered within the last couple of years. I would say, I would say more than your average male, I'm a hard on your sleep person. I feel like there's a stigma around men that you're just tough all the time and you never are emotional. And if you are, you're somehow less of a man. That's just not who I am. And some people admire that and some people don't like it at all. And that was really hard at me for a long time because I'm very much a people pleaser. I just want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to like me. It's the way I've always been. And it's one of my biggest struggles in life still to this day. But I came to a point where I was like, this is me, and I'm going to be me. And there's someone out there that the Lord has put on this earth that are going to love those things about me. And there may be a lot of people that don't, but somebody will. And I'm not going to change who I am and who the Lord has created me to be to try to fit in with society or try to fit into a relationship or anything like that. Because circling back to what you said early on in this conversation, there's one shot on this earth, and it is certainly a flawed and broken world. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes to kind of rabbit hole a little bit. We think that earth has to be this perfect picture and everything needs to be great. And if there's ever something we do a misstep on or if there's ever something that doesn't go exactly according to plan, if our team doesn't win the big game, if a big event we have doesn't go perfect, we question why did it happen that way or why did this have to happen but the reality is this world hasn't always will be broken. And honestly, thank goodness for that. Because if this was the best that it ever got, it would be really sad in my opinion. If earth was the best that we ever experienced, it would be 
horrible in my opinion because there's been so much hardship that I've seen in my life and the lives of other people. I don't know how you get to a point where you think, man, okay, this is great. This is this is the best because it's not. It's just not. There's so much brokenness and hardship and trial and tribulation on this earth that I'm so thankful that we have something to look forward to that is perfect and incomprehensible because it's so much better than what it is here. And truthfully, I'm thankful the Lord allows us to experience this here because it makes us realize the stark contrast between life on earth and life in eternity. And so are there events in my life that I wish could have gone different or do I wish that I would have maybe changed the way I did things? Yes, but that's part of growth and it's part of realizing that the best is yet to come. And for me, that's what spurs me for people ask all the time. Now, how are you so positive? How are you? How do you have such a good outlook on life, seeing as what you've gone through? You lost both your parents before you graduated high school. You didn't have a single pa- grandparent in your life by the time you graduated college. Like you have every reason in the world to have just turned away and and turned to so many things that would not have been beneficial. And you had every right to be mad at the world for the hand you got dealt. But the reality is, those things have given me even a greater appreciation of what's to come. Because I realize that this is temporary and I realize that there's going to come a day in time where there will be no pain, there will be no suffering. And if that doesn't give people the ability to smile to realize that there's better on the other side of this, I want to show them. I try to be a, a walking example of like, yes, there were tragedies in my life that have fully shaped who I am today. But one, here's how God has brought me through those things, even when I didn't think he could. And so how can you doubt that he can do the same thing for you in your life? But also in that, you have the ability to be a beacon and a light for other people that are going through the same difficulties that you are at one point in time. And you can use that to make a, an eternal impact on heaven. And that's a powerful thing, man. I just, I sit there at times, like, and I'm talking, I'm getting chills thinking about it right now. So I sit here thinking about the Lord did not have to give me a platform in the story he did. He truly did not. He does not need me. He does not need you. He does not need any of us. But he allows us the opportunity to step into other people's stories and be a part of their journey that ultimately ends in them spending life in eternity in heaven. And that's that's a powerful thing. Even when you consider the fact that we can't fully comprehend that here today, that's a powerful thing. And it's just such an honor that we get to be a part of those stories, even ones that we haven't recognized we've been able to be a part of. Your podcast is an example where there's people that are going to listen to your podcast and the people that you've talked to and conversations you've had that you may never know have had an impact on their life, but they do. And it's out there. And so I just think there's, with all the negativity on this earth, as divided as we are as a country, as much pain as there and hardship as there is, it's temporary. And there's so much good on the other side of this. I feel like that was a drop the mic moment because you nailed it. But if you know Will Gibson, you know there's one thing we have to talk about. Well, there's actually probably a couple of things that we should. But there's one. And it's Auburn football. As it stands, we're about to lose 100-0 to in a few short days in Tuscaloosa. I will just open the floor uh, and just ask you a general question. What are are you feeling about Auburn football? What's the outlook for the rest of the season, uh, for the rest of Gus Malzahn's contract? Uh, What's your thoughts on Auburn football right now? So I will try to keep this brief because, as you know, I could talk about this for a very long time. And I have a lot of very specific thoughts about the program and the trajectory, but I will say this weekend's game will be tough without a doubt. Going to Tuscaloosa, they're a very talented team. 
Mac Jones is probably the best quarterback in the SEC. He's got weapons all over the field. Even losing Waddle, they've still got Devontae Smith and so many weapons. Najee Harris is probably the best running back in the SEC, and it's just a story of the rich getting richer every year. They have so much turnover, and you think this will be their down year, and then the next five-star steps up, and they're good again. But I will say this rivalry has a way of producing unexpected results, and you don't have to look any further than last year to see that. I think COVID and football has been so interesting this year because so many people look at it as a regardless of what happens, there's going to be an asterisk on the season. And I think in a way it's it's hard to not look at it in that regard because so many players have missed, so many coaches have missed. Nick Saban, they just announced, won't, won't be on the sidelines this weekend because of a positive COVID test. And so I'm I'm glad we have football. It gives us something to watch and look forward to on Saturdays and Sundays. It's weird not being in Jordan-Hare. You know me. I, I hadn't missed a home game since 2011. I haven't been to a single home game this year. And so it's, it's weird watching games on TV and thinking the last time I wasn't there was when I was a high schooler. But I think they've done a really good job, not just Auburn, but the SEC in general. And, and most of the country has done a really good job of handling COVID protocols and trying to keep people safe while still trying to move forward. But I think it's fair to say there's been disappointment in this season. Just at a high-level overview, the, the loss to Georgia was probably expected. We hadn't won there since 2005, and they had another great team this year. I think the way we lost was disappointing. I think people probably expect Auburn to keep that game closer than they did. And then a few weeks later, the loss to South Carolina. I mean, them at this point, I believe they're 2-5 and five and just fired Will Muschamp. And so... I think the view of the season looks entirely different. If Auburn finds a way to win that game in South Carolina at williams Bryce, at that point you're looking at one loss and probably somewhere in the top ten. And at that point you really have everything to play for with the Iron Bowl and then Texas A&M and then potentially Mississippi State at the end of the season if they're able to still play the game. Because at that point you control your own destiny. But I really think, and this is the frustrating part of Gus to me, he, he, he tends to play well when everything is on the line and we're having a conversation about if he doesn't win this game, he might not be brought back the next year. And most of the time he finds a way to beat the teams that Auburn is favored to beat. But every once in a while, and this has popped up more recently than his first five or so seasons, the Tennessee game in 2018 at home comes to mind. And then South Carolina this year's teams that Auburn clearly had more talent than on both sides of the ball should have won the game, but a combination of, Player errors and coaching errors led to an unexpected loss. And then certainly the fact that we're now eight seasons into his, I guess this is season nine, eight full seasons, ninth season as head coach, hasn't won on the road at Georgia, at Alabama, or LSU. Fair or not, the bar for Auburn football is measured against those three programs because that's become the standard. And I think one of the best things and worst things about 2010 and 2013 is really raise the expectations for the fan base, which I personally think is good. Some people may look at that as a negative. But because Auburn won and then in just three short years went back and played and came just a couple plays short of winning a second one in four years, the expectation became competing for SEC and, as a result, national championships. And so in some ways I feel like Gus is taking criticism that he probably doesn't deserve. But at the same time, Auburn has to find a way to get over the hump and win some of these games on the road against their big three opponents because that is what they're measured by. And so I think especially due to COVID, 
regardless of how he finishes this year. I think it's likely that the team finishes 6-4. and four. I think they'll find a way to beat Mississippi State, but I think they'll likely lose to Bama and Texas A&M. That gets him another year in my book, especially with COVID. The athletic department across the country is stretched thin as far as money goes. It's hard to imagine they would come up with a buyout money needed to let him go. But I think 2021 is massive for him in so many ways because you would expect to be beyond COVID. So your expectations would be somewhat of a spring practice, a full summer, full fall camp, and then going into the season. You're going to return a junior Bo Nix. You're going to probably get guys that would have gone because everyone gets an extra year of eligibility this year. We'll have to see how that shakes out. I think likely you'll lose Seth Williams and K.J. Britt regardless of them being given another year of eligibility because I think they'll go to the draft. But I think Auburn's going to return a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, and I think the expectation is in year two of Chad Morris on the offensive side and then hopefully returning Kevin Steele would be that this team would absolutely be in contention for the SEC West and the SEC title, and as a result, the national title of the playoff with having Bama and Georgia at home at two. Excuse me, with having both of those teams at home as well. So there's going to be a lot on the line this year. I, I think he's safe regardless of what happens at this point. But I feel like we say this every year, where this is the year for Gus, and if he doesn't perform well, he's gone, and if he does, he'll stay. But it becomes tricky, in my opinion, beyond that because – you're getting close to when you would need to extend his contract or it would negatively hurt recruiting. So although we've said this three or four times in his coaching career at Auburn as a head coach, I truly feel like there has to be a decision after 2021 to fully commit to him for the foreseeable future. Or you've got to move forward with the thought that you're going to let his contract play out or potentially let him go if it was to get bad because you're going to reach a point where coaches from other schools are going to negatively recruit and say you don't know who your head coach is going to be in a few years and I like Gus he's a great guy he represents the university well but constantly falling short and losing games in big moments where you have to win or where the expectation is to win coupled with the fact that Auburn has only had one season since he's been head coach where they've lost less than four games the bar is just higher than it previously was. And maybe that's not fair to him. Maybe it'll take a few more coaches before expectations shift to pre-national championship and the national championship experience. Or maybe they'll always stay here. But I just think coaching is so competitive these days and there's so much of an expectation at every program to win and win now. It's not the way it used to be where you gave coaches three or four years to really get settled and to bring in their players and to build a foundation if you're not winning by year three and in some instances year two, you've already got a very short leash as far as being able to retain your job. So I, I hope it works out for Gus and I hope that they close this year strong and then have a, a, a good 2021 because it's in the best interest of Auburn for him to perform well so that they don't have to buy out his contract and then bring in another coach. But there's just going to be a lot riding on next year. And I think a lot of people are expecting big things with the way the schedule lines up and with the returning talent. It's going to be a big year for Auburn. I feel like the most uh, pain in my side when you talk about Ghost Malzahn coaching Auburn is that he's very much just like, and I think every fan, even if you're the fair weather football fan, much less a diehard Auburn fan like you, is like the play calling, the play calling, the play calling. And I think to take that a step further, what really irks me is that I'm like, all right, fine. If you want to do whatever that book that he always references about 
it's some military strategy book, but it's this idea of like, even if the enemy knows you're coming, it's still, it's just about whether or not they execute. So we're going to run the same five plays and we're just going to make them execute. And I'm like, fine, if, if that's what you want to do. But it's frustrating me that we're on season nine. And the only thing that has been proven is that Gus Malzahn needs a running quarterback, in my opinion, to be successful, i.e. Nick Marshall, Cam Newton. And so why we're not recruiting that, I don't know. In my opinion, Gus Malzahn is one of the biggest quarterback killers that I've ever been uh, a witness. Because you look at what Malik's doing at Liberty this year. He was on Auburn football's roster. Uh, you know, you look at a time when Jeremy Johnson was on the preseason, you know, Heisman watch list. You see Stidham ended up doing an amazing job, you know, in the NFL. Or, or maybe not an amazing job, but like was clearly much better than what we all thought he was. And I think it just comes down to these play calls, but it's like, bro, Gus, like just get the running quarterback and you'll be fine. Cause clearly Auburn football only does well if we can run the ball. If any team on any of these seasons has ever shut down Auburn running the ball, we're in trouble. Like it just never goes well. Cause it's about the up-tempo offense, gassing them, getting the defense to step up in the box, getting man coverage on the outside and then letting your receivers beat them. And you hit them with the deep ball. So, I mean, I have seen Chad Morris. I felt like we threw the ball farther down the field earlier last week against Tennessee than I have seen in a while. And some of those were kind of frustrating because we're on first and 10 starting from the 20 and you're taking shots way down the field. And then now you're doing two runs and then now we're punting the ball. But I just wish he would just get the running quarterback and then you can do your stupid BS thing that you want to do about here's my same five play calls. So it's hard to watch the success that he had. And again, you talk about things that were hurtful for Gus, one being the success the program had when he was offensive coordinator and won a national championship, and then the immediate success that he had as a head coach in 2013, coming in in year one, taking a program that was three and nine, that lost to Georgia and Alabama that year, shut out by both those programs, lost by a combined score of something in the realm of 90 to nothing. They really weren't competitive for most of Chiswick's last year at Auburn. Gus comes in, you go from three and nine to 12 and two. You, you come up a few plays short of winning a national championship, and suddenly the expectation is, especially with the way his offense performed in the SEC that year, is that we've got an offensive guru, we fix the defense, and this team is going to compete for championships for years to come because Gus is this innovative offensive mind that is going to be able to scheme regardless of the talent he has. He, he took a quarterback in Cam Newton who was a generational talent he learned from him week after week, built the offense around Cam and what worked best for the players on that team, whether it be running the veer with Michael Dyer, having Mario Fannin in there and Ontario McCaleb and using him on speed sweeps. He just knew how to use those players and he adapted his scheme to fit those players. I think where the frustration comes in is after 13, you said, okay, he adapted again. And we thought we had seen, because his offense in 2013 wasn't quite what it was in 10. And so he suited it to Nick Marshall's strengths and that team's strength, which was the left side of the offensive line with Greg Robinson, who later went number two in the draft. They were really strong on that side of the ball. And so, like you said, they only handful, had a handful of plays that they ran. But they were so dominant and their line was so good that it didn't matter. I mean, I remember being in Knoxville that year in 2013, and we just continued to run up the middle, play after play after play. But it didn't matter because – even though Tennessee knew exactly what was coming, they couldn't stop it. I think Nick Marshall threw eight passes that entire game. He didn't need to. We won by 20-plus points. I mean, it was incredible to watch that offense, and you thought, great, he gets a returning quarterback in Nick Marshall for a year two, and he loses some weapons, but you would think, okay, we've seen him do it twice. He can do it again. 
And they lose that game early to Mississippi State on the road, who was a top-five team at the time, and then they kind of fell apart and ended up losing four more games and finishing eight and five. Then you lose Nick, and at that point, we had seen a glimpse of Jeremy Johnson, and we think, okay, Gus is just going to adapt his offense. And I think this is probably one of the biggest missteps in his career, and I think he would be open about this down the road, is that at that point in time, he was generating buzz in the NFL, and there was some concern that he would think about leaving to take an NFL job, which is certainly understandable. A lot of coaches make the jump from college to the NFL if they're able. They don't have to recruit. They have more access with their players. They're not under the same time constraints. But they wanted to see more of his playbook as far as throwing the football, which is fair because we just didn't throw it as much under Nick. And the, the concepts were pretty basic routes, not a whole lot of combinations in the route tree, not many audibles at the line as far as hot routes go with the receivers. So then Jeremy Johnson comes in, and obviously it did not work. He was not successful, and Auburn struggled. And then it just felt like Gus never really committed to what had worked so well, which was – not that you necessarily are going to find another Cam Newton out there because there was only one Cam Newton. But Nick Marshall, I think people would say, was not the most accurate passer in the world. He he was efficient, and he could be. He threw a great deep ball, but he kind of sometimes struggled in the short to intermediate game. So you didn't have to have an elite passer, and you didn't necessarily have to have a guy that was 6'6", 250 pounds to be able to run the football successfully. Nick was lightning quick, and I think Nick is probably one of the most underrated quarterbacks in Auburn's history. I don't think people, especially that 14 team, with Nick Marshall and Cameron Artis Payne, who led the SEC in rushing that year. I think we took for granted just how automatic those guys were and how good they were during those seasons. And it wasn't until 15 with Jeremy and then 16 with Sean White before Stidham that we really understood how good those guys were. And then he went to the transfer market and got Stidham from Baylor, who was really good in year one. And obviously he had changed coordinators and there was – a lot of speculation on who was calling plays during those times and whose playbook it was. And then here we are in 2020, and you've got year two of Bo, who's pretty mobile and has a great arm, but there's some concerns about his ability to play on the road and what that looks like. But he has a quarterback committed in this next class who's a true, true dual threat that if you're trying to compare recent Auburn quarterbacks, he probably most aligns with Nick Marshall. He's a runner first that can't throw the football. And so I wonder how much of that is Chad Morris's influence on Gus, especially considering that they were good friends for so long. And now he's the offensive coordinator at Auburn, obviously. I wonder how much of that is Chad's input and saying, Gus, you know, this worked really well. Maybe we pivot back to this. I wonder how much of that is self-reflection on Gus's part to say, okay, I tried for five years to go to a more traditional offense and we haven't had as much success. But to me, the, the most difficult part of that to move past is it's hard to have a head coach at a program like Auburn who seems to be learning on the job. And he only had that one year at Arkansas State as a head coach. Now, granted, he was a high school coach in Arkansas for years. He was a, a legend in the state of Arkansas. But as far as being a head coach at a big-time program like Auburn, it's difficult to bring in someone who you feel that in year nine is still trying to learn on the job. The expectation is you would have somebody that – had had some of those struggles, but maybe at a smaller school before Auburn brought them up. But again, it just goes back to how hard it is to find the right coach, one. And two, everybody is compared, unfairly so, to Nick Saban and to Dabo Sweeney and the success that they've had. And there really, for any program right now, is no middle ground. 
it's either you're you're as good as Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney, or we need to find another coach. And I think so much of that it goes back to our generation of we want instantaneous things, we want success right away, we don't deal with failure as well as maybe we should. And so the the right answer seems to always be we'll just fire the coach, pay him whatever we had to pay him, and then just go get the next guy. And if he doesn't work, just fire him. The unfortunate part about that is there's not an unlimited pool of money that the university can pull from. And especially in a time like COVID, I think you'll see very few coaching changes this season because most schools are trying to just balance a budget in the athletic department when they're not bringing in much revenue. I mean, everybody is basically operating at a loss this year because they're losing so much from ticket sales and from purchasing, whether that be concessions or, you know, you name it. And so I, I don't think we'll see much movement on, from a coaching perspective this year unless they have very small buyouts or no buyouts at all just because financially it, it's almost impossible to do this year. I feel like the greatest unsung hero of Gus Malzahn's tenure at Auburn has been the defense. Like, for whatever reason, which has been frustrating, it, it seems like there's this seesaw effect where we either have this lights-out offense and just an average SEC defense, which is still a really good defense, uh, or we have a very above or below average rather offense that's struggling that Gus is putting in two quarterbacks. And we're trying to figure out who should be the starter that we don't really know what we're doing. And we have this lights out, you know, defensive line linebackers that are just keeping us in the game when we shouldn't be. So I feel like if we would have had like consistently a terrible defense. Gus would have been gone a long time ago because I feel like that the atmosphere for getting rid of him. What was it like two seasons ago? I feel like it was like at a pinnacle all time high, but what happened? We had a good defense. Like Kevin Steele has been amazing. I, I'm a big fan of Kevin Steele. Clearly you can look at, I remember times being a student. So from 10 to 14, like there were times when it was scary when the team would either throw like a screen to the outside or there'd be some sweep because like our DBs would just be like throwing themselves, you know, just trying to grab a foot rather than actually wrapping up. And then you see Kevin Steele, like, we have some like no name DBs really the past couple of years, but they've like made tackles on the outside. Like our linebackers are wrapping up. So it's like the defense is unfortunately keeping Gus there, but I want to circle back first to your thoughts on Kevin Steele and the defense. I don't think Kevin Steele gets enough credit for the work that he's done, but also even to take a step back, I don't think Will Muschamp was given enough credit for the one year he was there in 15 because he led the transition from what was a below-average SEC defense. He brought in a ton of players that fit the system well. I mean, I think about he brought in Jamal Dean, who's in the NFL now. He brought in Carlton Davis, who's in the NFL now. Both those guys play for the Bucks, and they're phenomenal. He brought in Javaris Davis. He brought in so many guys between him and T-Rob, who was the secondary coach at the time, that basically did not miss. They hit on almost every one of their targets that year in recruiting and he brought back a hard-nosed Auburn football defense that I didn't feel I had seen since Tuberville was there and so you're talking a gap of seven years eight years if you want to consider 08 a down year when they went five and seven and so he really led that transition and still took that and really ran with it and you hit the nail on the head when you talk about how it feels at times that we've had an elite offense and a lackluster defense or an elite defense and a lackluster offense, which is frustrating at times. It almost feels like if we get a piece of those together, if you think about the 13 and 14 team, you think about putting any defense on the field between 2015 and now, you would look at those teams and probably say, both those teams make the playoffs because 
they were that talented on the offensive side of the ball. They were scoring 35 points a game. They just couldn't hold anybody below 30. And so because of that, every game was a shootout. And so I think Steele and Muschamp deserve so much credit. I think they've recruited very well and really changed the culture around defense as it kind of fell off over the years between Tuberville and when we moved over to Gus. I, I feel like we could just keep going forever, but unfortunately Apple's going to limit us. And I feel like if I would have asked you about crypto, that would have been another hour, but we're not going to do that. So instead, I'm going to ask you uh, the same question that I ask everybody. The last question, as you know, you're on the No More Zero Days podcast. A zero day is is simply defined when you get nothing done towards accomplishing your dream, your goal, be it being a better head coach at Auburn football, be it being in a relationship, being it starting to work out or somewhere in between all of that. So what piece of advice would you give to someone who is stuck in this zero day mentality where they're not getting anything done towards wherever that goal or dream is because of some obstacle, be it a physical one in their life or mentally that's holding them back or, you know, a family hardship or something like that that's preventing them from being the person that God needs them to be. So what piece of advice would you give to someone today that's listening that is stuck in that zero-day mentality in hopes to offer them a solution or some things that have been helpful to you of, of moving out of your own zero-day mentality? I think this is something likely everybody's heard at some point in time, but I don't know how many times we've all truly applied it to our lives. And that advice is you just need to start somewhere and put one foot in front of the other because I think that a lot of times we see an end result that we want to achieve, right? And it's so far away. And in our mind, we picture the 20 steps it's going to take to get there. And we think, how in the world do I ever make it from A to Z? There's so much that needs to be done. So with that, I just tell people to start. Because you can't get to Z unless you step from A to B. And you have to be okay at times, too, taking two step forward and one step back. And maybe even some days you take one step forward and two step back. A misstep isn't a prevention from achieving your final goal. Sometimes the path isn't always linear. Sometimes there's mountains and valleys. But with that, you can't be deterred by the bad days because not every day is going to be a win and not every day is going to be great, but you've just got to start and then you've got to keep moving. That's the biggest thing because Z, it looks a long way away when you're at A and it still looks a long way away when you're at D and E and F and G. But if you don't continuously take that one step at a time, you're never going to make it to Z. And with that, Having people that encourage and motivate you towards whatever that goal is for you, I think is really important. It's the significance of having accountability partners in your life that can challenge you because it's easy as an individual to either get complacent with where you're at or to get deterred if you're not where you think you should be. But again, that goes back to the conversation we had about community and the significance of having people in your life that believe in you and that are going to spur you on to be the best version of yourself to say, Hey, I know you expected to be here and you're not quite there, but you can still get there. And you've got people that believe in you and that there's going to be people surrounding you and community and rallying behind you to get there. And so I guess that's a sidestep. If you don't have that community, I would encourage you to find it. And I know think people think that's hard to do and you may not know where to start. I would be happy if it's somebody here, if you live in the Nashville area or if you live in Atlanta, 
I would be happy to plug you in with somebody who would love to walk with you in community and help get you to where you want to go. Cause I realize it's not always easy to just have somebody. It took me years to find that. And so I'm sure there's people out there that don't have that as well, but not looking, it's okay to look at the end result and where you want to be, but don't be so intimidated by the final step that you don't take the first two or you'll never get there.